Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Andy Enriquez is pure passion, high energy, thought-provoking. This guy speaks from the heart. And if you've ever seen him or heard him for that matter, then you know that these words accurately describe what Andy's all about. He delivers unforgettable experiences and helps people make an impact through the lost art of storytelling. The legendary Les Brown calls Andy the great one, and for good reason. Andy entertains while he empowers when he speaks, and on this show, we learn about his process. He talks about what the role of growing up to immigrant parents from Haiti had on who he is today. We talk about what lessons he learned from Les Brown, and he walks us through the framework for how to develop what he calls your signature story. So if you want to learn how to tell your story better, then there's no one better than Andy to share how to do it. I can't wait for you to listen to this one, so let's dive straight in to the conversation. Andy Enriquez, welcome to Inside Out. Hey, what's going on, Billy, man? I am so excited to be here, man. Oh, you know I am too. We were just talking beforehand, and I love learning about your story. So let's dive in. Let's let's talk about growing up. Your parents are immigrants from Haiti. How does that influence your life? What is the number one reason that that made an impact on who you are today? You know, I think that what it really did was just show me the importance of of being grounded, understanding that, you know, that there's tremendous opportunity everywhere and that no one was going to necessarily come and hand you the opportunity, but you're going to have to work for it. When my parents came, they had really, really limited resources. And uh, specifically, you know, I, I share a story a lot about my mom, who when she came, she specifically had like $150 to her name. Like that was it when she came to the country. And she's probably been like the biggest influence in my life. And what I've always loved about her is that Regardless of the fact that she didn't have very much resources, she never really used that as an excuse. For her, it was always about like, how do we find the solution? How do we find the answer? And that we could always work towards it. I've never, ever heard my mom say, no, you can't do something or you can't have something. And this is a woman who came from nothing. And so she just had this way of like sowing this belief into me that there was always going to be some type of possibility there. You may have to work for it. You are probably going to have to make sure that you didn't infringe on anybody else's rights or beliefs or harm anybody in the process. But if you wanted it and you're willing to work for it, you can make it happen. And I was able to witness her life firsthand, watching her have absolutely nothing and then end up retiring earlier than most Americans in this country do, who speak the language, who had way more resources because of her sort of like perception and her attitude about life. And I would say that that's probably what I got most from my mom is just really her mindset and this like belief that things are possible. And also just sort of like this responsibility that even in the pursuit of the things that you desire in life, that we've got to be real intentional about making sure that we are being kind and considerate and giving to those around us. And I tell you, just really leveraging those principles from her has been an absolute blessing in my personal life as well as in my business life. Mm. Well, you know, it's so interesting because like being an immigrant coming to this country, your mom and your dad, I, I feel like, and I've heard this story 
over and over again, there's perspective. And that perspective, it helps to create a fire under, you know, getting them to do something to make the most of this opportunity that they're given. And I think if I'm being blunt about it, I think many people who are born here, who raise, they take it for granted. They take it for granted. And I'm so, so I'm curious, what are your thoughts? Have you, have you given that thought? Have yeah. You, thought- you know, you know, Billy, here's the thing, man. I, I always find like I have to be a little delicate about that conversation <laughs> um, because, you know, especially for everybody listening in right now, when we make a comment like that, it's, it's most definitely not trying to put everybody into one bucket. But the reality of it is, is that, you know, I feel like specifically for, you know, immigrants and, and people like my mom who came with absolutely nothing, they just really value the opportunity and I feel are willing to pay such a bigger price to make the most of the opportunity. You know, when my mom first kicked off and she came to the United States and specifically to South Florida, She had a cousin that was working down in Miami, Florida, that was working as a housekeeper in a hotel. And without asking any questions, it was just like, hey, it's a job, you know, putting ego to the side. And it was like, hey, I could get money doing this. And right away, my mom came and like that first week, she was right there making up beds in hotel rooms, basically throwing away people's dirty, uh, you know, items that they've left in the trash and making up their beds and scrubbing uh, the bathroom towel, because that was just what was available for her at that particular time. And I just feel like, you know, the thing that's like the major differentiator is like what you were saying before, Billy, it's just that perspective, like, man, this is an opportunity. And, you know, forget, I'm not going to put my ego in this. I'm not going to be concerned about what people think. It's an opportunity. And so I'm going to make the most out of the opportunity. And I'm hoping that this opportunity is going to lead to another opportunity. Whereas there's other folks that the same opportunity is available to them, but maybe perhaps they they feel like, you know, maybe this is beneath me or this is not necessarily where I want to start off. And I think that that gives a competitive advantage to the people who are immigrants who come from nothing, just like, you know, egos to the side, what others think of me push to the side and it's an opportunity and I'm going to make the most of this opportunity. And I'm hoping that this opportunity is going to open a door for another opportunity. And I believe that that type of mindset ultimately creates a competitive advantage in the long run. And I'll say this, Billy, I have seen so many people that my mom introduced me to them and said, Hey, this is such and such. They just came here from Haiti. Mm-hmm. This is like your cousin's cousin's cousin, right? They didn't speak the language or whatever, and they didn't have a car, didn't have resources. And then it'd be about a month later, they'd have a job at one of the hotels. Might be, you know, just basically cleaning, but they'd have a job at the hotel. They'd be catching a bus. Check in about seven months later, somehow they saved up enough money to get a little used car. You check in about five years later, and now they're a homeowner. <laughs> You're like, what? Right? And it's just like, this is crazy. And then I'll have a discussion with somebody else. And then they'll tell me, well, there's no opportunities, man. You don't understand. I'm like, in, in my mind, oftentimes I just go, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. I don't understand. And I don't always choose to, to go with, lean into that conversation, man. But I've definitely seen it firsthand, Billy, firsthand, man. Oh. It is a competitive advantage, my friend. Yeah. You, and the word that you, you just said it again, that competitive advantage is, is real. Who was it that would tap you on the shoulder and say, good boy, good boy, good boy, good boy. <laughs> yeah, man. That's so crazy that you actually know that, man. You've done some, some real research, man. And definitely from listening into uh, some of your other podcasts, I should have known, Billy, you know? <laughs> so it's interesting, man. My dad was like a really cool laid back kind of guy. From watching the interactions with my dad, he was really a, like a charismatic, cool guy. But as far as the role as a dad, I don't know if he really knew exactly what to do, you know, in, in terms of a dad. So these are, these are the memories that I have primarily of my dad, like the role that he played. He would wake up early in the morning. 
he'd get my uh, breakfast ready. And normally that was like a bowl of cereal. So, you know, I'd wake up in the morning, bowl of cereal already there, the bowl, the spoon, the box. If I was doing any extracurricular activities at school, he'd be the one there to really pick me up. But we never really had like those significant son and father conversations or went outside and threw the ball around and so forth. But he still had this way of just, you know, letting me know that he was, you know, either proud of me or, you know, that he was there. And, you know, his thing would be like, you know, I'd come in or whatever. He would see me. I'd be sitting or whatever. He just has this way, man. He'd just come over, just tap me on my head, you know what I mean? And be like, good boy, good boy, good boy. <laughs> and, yeah, man. Yeah, man. That was his thing, Billy. That was his thing. That was, you know, that was just sort of like his way of, I guess, just letting me know he's there, he's proud of me and so forth. And really probably the extent of what he knew to do as a dad. And you know, it's interesting because when I would speak to uh, one of my older brothers, uh, half brothers at that, and he would tell me about my dad's dad, right? My grandfather. And I, I don't know if my grandfather necessarily set the best example for my dad either. It was, you know, he's from that sort of old school, you know, it's about working, taking care of the household. And then, you know, my grandma would be the one that took care of all the interaction and the things with the kids and so forth. And it's funny how when you get that insight, it sort of creates a little shift in your perspective, right? You end up, you know, you don't necessarily create like a false narrative around it, but rather you start saying, okay, I get it. I get it. That's, that's what he knew. You know, people ask all the time, well, where's your dad? Where's your dad? Because, Andy, every time I see a video, you're always talking about your mom, your mom, your mom. Was your dad around? Now, here's the thing. My dad was around, but my biggest influence was my mother. She's had the biggest impact in my life. And my dad was there. But in so many ways, he was there. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, not not in a negative way, but not necessarily in a really strong positive way either, but he was there. You know, there's some things I definitely took from him. And one of which he was a very kind man, really chill, laid back kind of guy, was really into helping people around him. And also the other thing is, dude, Billy, the guy never got mad. I've never seen my dad raise his voice or get upset or anything like that. And when I look back, I'm like, man, that's amazing. Like I've seen once or twice where you know, my mom was upset and she like raised her voice at him and so forth. And he's always even kill, man. Dude has never, I've never seen the guy raise his voice uh, ever, man. So uh, God bless his heart, man. You know, my dad passed away in 2007. It's interesting. I get asked the question a lot. I've never had anybody ask me that. So you have definitely done uh, your <laughs> research, really. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Well, calm, cool, and collected. It sounds like, it sounds like that's a, a great thing that you did learn. But to your point, and I'm always intrigued by themes in people's lives. And you're one of the themes that, that I know is really important to you is showing up. You, you had an influence early in elementary school. It was a teacher. It wasn't that English was a second language, but because you spoke Creole at home, they thought it was. They thought English wasn't your first language. Maybe you just came to the country, but you were born here and you, uh, you, you didn't have necessarily the opportunity to speak English as much at home. And so there was a special teacher. Can you talk a little bit about who that is and the influence she had? Yeah, man, absolutely. You know, it's, it's so crazy. So I remember Norwood Elementary School. You know, I was there at school and right away they were like, you know, they noticed that I was having uh, some challenges keeping up with some of the other kids in my class. And so they called me over to the principal's office and they also asked my mom to come in. And they told my mom that they were going to have to put me into a special class. And this specifically for, for the children um, who were either had a learning disability or English was not necessarily their primary language. When my mom found out that this school was, uh, this particular class was more or less remedial or whatever, she was like, no, 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 my son, he's, he's a smart, you know, my son, NZ, he's a smart guy. He's a, he's a smart, he's a smart boy. And, and, and they would say, well, you know, he's having some challenges. And it, it was in that moment that my mom realized that she never really explained to them something. So what happened is they were looking at my birth certificate and my birth certificate showed that I was born in the United States. But what they did not know was at home, you know, my parents were speaking Creole 
fluently. So my mom's speaking Creole, my dad's speaking Creole, the people who are coming to our household are speaking Creole. So even though I was born in the United States, my primary language initially was Creole. So the issue was I didn't have a learning disability. The issue was that I didn't really fully comprehend the language. And so my mom pleaded with them and she was like, oh my gosh, please do not put my son into one of those classes. You know, he's a smart kid. And then my mom said, do you guys happen to have like a bilingual or Haitian or Creole speaking teacher here at the school? And then they said, actually, we do. We do have a, a lady. Uh, her name is Mike Claire Bouvet. And, and they said, uh, we're going to call her. And, and she came forward and my mom had a conversation where my mom was like, look, you know, my son, he's, he's, he's a, a good boy. He, he's smart. He's very smart, but they want to put him in the class. And, and then, you know, m- my mom pleaded, pleaded with this lady to tutor me or help me in whatever way that she could. And my mom was so convincing and spoke to her with so much conviction that this lady did the unbelievable. She told my mom that, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. Every single day after school, if you're okay with it, I'm going to take him home with me and I will sit with him for hours and I'm going to help him to, number one, learn the English language. I'm going to help him with his schoolwork. And then you just come pick him up after work. And that woman, Marie-Claire Bouvet, nicknamed Keke, that woman became my second mom. And that woman literally changed the trajectory of my life. Like she showed me the importance of like discipline. Like we would come home and I would sit at that table with her for hours, two hours, three hours as a young kid. It's hard to keep a young kid at a table for that long. Um, and, and, and I don't know if you remember this, Billy, in grade school where you had to write you know, the letter A in cursive, and then you did the letter B and so forth. And I tell you, when we would be working on that assignment, if I had just one of those letters was like poorly written, she'd make me erase the whole thing and do it over again. Now, at that time, I felt like it was torture. But what she was doing is she was teaching me to have standards. And it was this idea of like, you know, is this your best? And if it's not your best, then do it again. And if that's not your best, and do it again. You know, I remember hearing somebody once say, you know, it's like good, better, best, never let it rest until mm-hmm. your good becomes better and your better becomes your best. Right. And it, I felt like that that was one of those things that was ingrained. I remember T. Harvecker used to have a saying he'd say all the time, you know, it's how you do anything is how you do everything. And I feel like even though she wasn't saying those type of statements to me, but she was indoctrinating me to have a certain level of discipline and also have certain amount of standards in my life and then also have the willingness to be able to do the work and understand that the that you always want to see if there's a way for you to improve your best and that really stuck with me and I'm telling you she took me from being that student that was struggling that they were thinking about putting into remedial classes to becoming a straight A student in elementary school But then here's the crazy thing. As far as like, you know, she would stay in my life all the way until she passed away. But it was only during that elementary school block that I had her as a tutor and sitting at the table with me. Beyond that, she was like a second mom to me. But my mom, biological mom says, Andy, this is crazy. She says, I can never, ever remember sitting down at the table to do homework with you. This is my biological mom speaking now. She says, you went through middle school as a straight A student, high school as a straight A student. And she's like, I didn't do anything. I didn't help you with anything. But it just really showed me, Billy, like that importance of that foundation. And then here's what the crazy thing is. It didn't stop. I went to college and graduated summa cum laude. I got a master's degree. Dude, I got like one A minus through undergrad and master's. It then went on and took like the CPA exam and passed it on the first attempt. It was like insane that, and it just like has completely transformed my level of belief of the importance of laying like a solid foundation, right? And I'm sure that there's some things about my personality that I really, I do, I do understand that I, you know, I'm sort of analytical in nature and I can sit down for long periods of time, but I'm telling you, 
with that foundation being laid, she just completely transformed my entire life, man. And, you know, a lot of people are blessed in life to have one mom. Billy, I was blessed, man. I had two moms, two moms. Uh, My biological mom, by the grace of God, is still alive right now. And then my secondary mom, which was my Claire Bouvet, would be the full way to say it, nicknamed Keke, which is what I called her, you know, just completely transformed my life, man. And I tell you, Billy, I I think about this all the time. I bring this up to to her daughter. She has multiple daughters and, and also son, but one particular daughter that every once in a while we will text and I bring up to her all the time, man. My, my, the thing is, I just wish that some of these special moments that I've gone on to have, man, I, I really wish she was there to see it. You know, she, she was able to see the beginning, but um, dude, man, I, I wish she was there, you know? So I'm hoping that she's smiling down from heaven, man, right. and, and seeing the fruits of her labor. But yeah, man, I, I sure wish, you know, there's, there's some special things I wish I could do for her. If she was, you know, still living and, and definitely some special moments that I really wish I would have been able to share with her. Well, I'm grateful to Keke for helping to <laughs> be that I get to speak to and learn from today. And to your point, that strong foundation, it allows you to build the house on top of it. And I know education was important to your family. And, and by the way, we talk about themes. I, I know there's a lot of pressure, especially being a son of an immigrant family, like <laughs> education, go get a job. You're like, okay, I'm taking this seriously. You're like summa cum laude and getting a, a master's <laughs> in corporate accounting of all things. And then going to work for Price Waterhouse Coopers on top of everything else. And then something shifted. So I want to talk about the transformation. You realized at some point that wasn't what you were destined to do, even though it was a part of your experience and helped you become who you are today, you knew you wanted something more. When did you know that? You know, it's funny, Billy, I, you know, because you're, you're so great at asking these questions. I want to share something that I, I typically don't really get into sharing. It's sort of like, I felt like there was a domino that fell down and then it continued to drop some other dominoes. So when I was at Florida State University, I got an opportunity to intern for PricewaterhouseCoopers. And so I go in for the internship. It's like a honeymoon, man. These people, it's, it's amazing, dude. I remember like they took the interns in a limousine and we would go out to these amazing uh, dinners. And, you know, when you were interning, like if it got like 430, you got sent home early because they didn't want to keep you working too late. Right. Uh, and I remember during the internship, man, I would meet these, you know, managers and, and seniors and partners and everything. And then so I would go back finish my senior year and then get my master's degree. And now we're about two years later. And now I've decided to take a full-time position with PricewaterhouseCoopers. Dude, the honeymoon's over, man. The honeymoon <laughs> is over, dude. It's 4.30. I'm at the client side. I'm looking at my watch. It's like, yeah, dude, no one's sending you home, man. You're not an intern anymore. I'm working there. You know, I'm at the client site sometimes till 9, 10 o'clock p.m. And I'm like, whoa, okay. Then the other thing is when I interned, there were some managers that I really took a liking to. And I remember when I first came back and I was asking, you know, how's so-and-so? Like, how's John? How's Deborah? And so forth. And they would get real quiet. So what happened? They said, actually, we had some layoffs. And that's when, like, the reality that, wait a second, like, you can get a career and you can be laid off? Like, I was just, like, bonding with these people during my internship. And I was like, wow, people got laid off. But man, this is what did it. I'm working with them now for about maybe about two and a half years or so. And I'm at a client site. I was in their assurance practice, which is basically means I was an auditor. And oftentimes as an auditor, you wouldn't work from the office. You would actually go to a client site and we would, you know, go speak to their CEO, their CFO, their, you know, internal controller. And we would request documents so that we could prepare their financial statements. And so one particular evening, it's a group of us, it's myself, there's a manager on the job, and there's another like a senior associate, and it gets late. When you work in those kind of hours, people start opening up. And we're going around and, and people just start opening up about the things that they wanted to do. And I think we got to one young lady and she talked about how she always wanted to become an entrepreneur. And she talked about like the type of business that she wanted to go into. I spoke to the other person that was there. And they were talking about how they always wanted to work for the FBI, right? Initially, they went into accounting because they wanted to become an FBI agent and something happened and they got derailed. 
And there was one other person that was speaking and they too were also talking about something that they wanted to do. Now, here's what I realized. The common denominator between all of them, Billy, was that (laughs) none of them were doing the thing that they said that they wanted to do. (laughs) Okay. And then the other thing was that the longer that they were there with the company, the greater the likelihood they weren't going to do it because now it's about the promotion, the next thing and so forth. And without me even having this conversation with them, that like experience with them haunted me. And the reason why I say that is because it was like they were holding a mirror up for me and helping me to see what my future was going to look like if I didn't do something radical. And so what I realized was that if I didn't make a decision to leave corporate America and go after this dream that was in my heart, wasn't clear what it was. I knew I wanted to become an entrepreneur. I enjoyed personal development. I at least knew that. I didn't necessarily know at that point exactly what type of entrepreneurship I was going to go into. And I didn't know that I was going to become like a speaker and a coach and so forth. That I wasn't clear of. But I knew that what I was doing at that point was not what I wanted to do. Um, And man, lo and behold, and Billy, you'll probably be able to relate to this and so many other folks, you know, I always think that when you are about to have a defining moment, you are going to be tested. So one of the things I tell people is whenever you're about to experience a breakthrough, expect to be tested. If I'm speaking in front of a room, I actually would tell people to write this down. I'll say, write this down, expect to be tested. But here's the thing. When you say that, Billy, the average person expects it to be a negative test. They expect it to be something negative, something bad's going to happen. But let me tell you, in my particular case, I was like trying to build the courage to finally leave PricewaterhouseCoopers. And then they end up sending out a list of the new promotions. And whose name was on the list of promotions? My name, of course. Who was also getting a bonus? I was, of course. And so here I was, finally built the courage. I'm like, I'm going to do this because for about an additional, probably like year and a half from that moment, I was talking myself into leaving and then talking myself right back out. I'd be like, come on, Andy, you could do it. You could become an entrepreneur. You can make things happen. And another part of me would be like, oh, man, but come on, man. You did spend a lot of time getting your undergraduate degree. You spent a lot of time getting your master's. You studied like crazy for the CPA exam. And I was like in limbo. And finally, I built up the courage to turn in my letter of resignation to, you know, Tammy Klein, who was the head of HR at that time. And I finally get it ready. And then they release the promotions and I'm on there. And now I'm like trying to convince myself like, oh, you know what? Maybe I should stick around. I'm going to save a little more money. And then, and then I'll leave at a higher position. So in case things don't necessarily work out for you. And I just went through this like entire process of delaying it. And thank God, thank God that I finally made the decision a couple of weeks later to turn in that letter of resignation. And I'm telling you, I walked into that office of Tammy Klein, Billy, and I said something that sounded great. But I did not know exactly how things were going to work out or what was going to be next. I just knew that I just couldn't do that anymore. And I remember it would be probably like 10 years later, I saw Will Smith being interviewed. And in the interview, he was talking about having a plan B. And his thought process was like, there's no need for a plan B because plan B only distracts you from plan A. And it was just this, this mindset of going all in, right? You just got to go all in. And December of 2004 was my defining moment. That was the moment that I decided to go all in. I didn't have it figured out. I didn't know how things were going to work out, man. <laughs> I didn't know how I'd be ended up to where I am right now having this conversation with you, Billy. But I knew I needed to go all in. And there's probably somebody right now who's listening in, man. And it's that time to go all in. Like you've been straddling the fence, right? They've been, they've been thinking about it, but you know it's that time. You're afraid because you think you got to have it all figured out. And I'm going to tell you right now, you would not have it all figured out. And at some point, you just got to make your move, man. And, and that's what I did, Billy. And that changed everything, my friend. That changed everything. Oh, powerful. Well, burn the boats. You don't need a safety net. <laughs> that's it, man. People don't regret what they've done. They regret what they haven't done. 
And so even though you didn't know exactly what that would be, you knew it wasn't what you were doing. So let's, in a minute, we're going to get into public speaking and I want you to throw some knowledge and I want to talk about, you know, your signature story and how you have a framework for other people's signature story. Uh, But before we get into that, talk a little bit about, and maybe you could intertwine the two, but talk a little bit about that lightning rod, that epiphany moment when you realized I want to be up on stage. That's my calling. That's my destiny. That's what I want to do with my life. Yeah, man. You know, it's interesting, Billy, because you're pulling all these additional things out of me that only if someone's listening to this podcast would they hear it. So typically, when I'm giving the Cliff Notes version, I talk about, you know, how I saw this gentleman in front of the room. But I tell you, the seed was planted a little earlier than that. There was a friend of mine from college that reached out to me after I had left Coopers. And she was super excited and she wanted me to look at an opportunity. And even just the whole way she presented it, it was a network marketing business. And I remember I was like, oh my gosh, she's calling me so much. So I'm finally going to go and take a look at this opportunity. And so I remember I sat in the back and I was like, "Ah, I'm just coming so I could tell her and I could be like, hey, I went, leave me alone, stop calling me. And I remember I was there. And, you know, the presenter at the front of the room started telling their story and they started talking about the opportunity. And the more they did, the more that my resistance went down. And I went from having like my arms crossed at the back of the room and now I'm starting to lean in and I'm like, oh, man. And then so I end up enrolling into this direct sales company. And then I was told about the importance of like, you got to go to the national convention. You got to come to the uh, national convention, because this is where the opportunity becomes real. You get thousands of representatives come. And I remember heading out to Anaheim, California. It was my first national convention for this company. And I remember walking into this arena and there's thousands of people. I mean, Billy, they've lost their minds, man. They're screaming. They're going crazy. And then over that weekend, I would see speaker after speaker after speaker on the stage that would just come up and they would share and tell their stories. And I just remember the conviction that they transferred from the stage. Mm -hmm. I just remembered the way that I felt listening to them. I remember looking around and seeing the other people and seeing how the people were like responding and reacting to them. And I remember just saying to myself, like, I want to be the guy on the stage. Now, at that moment when I said it, Billy, I thought that my road to being on the stage was going to be for me becoming a top producer and top earner in the company. But that wouldn't be my path. What really happened was I really got an opportunity to see the vision of what I wanted for my life, which was to be sharing a message on stage and impacting and changing people's lives. And I tell you, it wasn't through becoming a top producer in the company, but that industry is so big on personal development that I started going to seminars and workshops. And and I remember specifically going to a weekend seminar and workshop. And that's where I share that story that Man, there was this guy in the front of the room, super dynamic, high energy, right? And I remember watching, I was like, wow, like I've seen a lot of speakers, but this guy here, my goodness, <laughs> this guy's amazing, right? And I ran up to that guy at the end of one of his events in Orlando, Florida. And I was like, sir, you know, you're amazing, sir. I want to be able to tell and share stories like you, sir. Uh, could you coach me anything? And then he told me to go to the back of the room. And that guy was one of the top five speakers on the planet that so many of you who are listening in, you probably have heard of him. If you haven't, I encourage you to Google him. It's the one and only Les Brown. Um, and I remember just, you know, looking at him like, oh my goodness, sir, is there, is there any way you could teach me how to be able to speak like you? And, and he told me to head to the back of the room. And there's a young lady by the name of Star Babatoon that was over his program. And I enrolled into his Platinum Speaker program, which is a program he had like over 15 years ago. He may have a variation of it, but it was called the Platinum Speaker program. And Billy, I was terrified, man. It was the biggest investment outside of college that I'd ever made in a personal development program. It was a $30,000 program. When I saw the price, dude, I hit out. 
the lady running the program was like calling me to follow up to complete like enrolling me, man. When I saw the price, dude, I was like hiding out. I was like doing everything to avoid her. But the crazy thing is, man, Les Brown reached out to her. She told me this after the fact. He said, hey, what about that young man, that Andy Henriquez guy that came up? I like that guy. What happened with him? He said, I, I've been calling him. He hasn't been picking up the phone. And so Les said, give me his number. And then, you know, Billy, last thing I'm expecting is Les Brown's going to call me, man. Phone rings. I don't recognize the number. I pick it up. It's like, hey, Andy, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? It's Mamie Brown's baby boy, <laughs> Leslie Calvin Brown. Hey, young man, I thought you said you want to become a speaker. Uh, yeah, I do. He said, I thought you said you want to learn how to tell your stories. Yeah, I do. Well, what's happening, man? What are you going to do? And dude, I was put on the spot and I had to wrestle, man, between my fears and I had to wrestle between the thing that I said that I wanted. And, um, you know, I had to ask for a payment plan. <laughs> I asked for a payment plan, but I made that investment, man, and everything changed for me. And what I realized is that, you know, at the at the very beginning, I thought I was investing in Les Brown, but really I was investing in myself. And that investment changed everything. I remember, you know, Tony Robbins was talking about interviewing Warren Buffett. And the question in so many words to Warren Buffett was like, hey, Mr. Buffett, you know, you've been so successful and you've been successful in real estate. You've been successful in the stock market. You've been successful at turning businesses around. But he said, out of all the things that you've done, what's the best investment that you've ever made? And then Warren Buffett ends up bringing up this Dale Carnegie course, man. So in so many, so many words, what he's saying, the best investment that he made was an investment in himself. And so what I realized was that everything changed for me in that moment. Because I had finally invested at the level in which I expected results. See, I always had these big dreams and big desires, but I was always making these small investments. And that was my first time being fully congruent, right? You got this big dream, big goal, big desire. And I made a pretty big investment for me at that time that really stretched me. And then the other thing was who I became in that process, right? I tell, I tell you, man, when you invest at a higher level, you show up differently. And you better believe, man, once oh, I start yeah. paying that money, <laughs> I was expecting more out of myself, man. Not so much out of Les Brown, but I was expecting more out of myself. Um, and as the rest, as they say, is, you know, history. And, you know, that that was like the beginning process of me learning how to develop my voice, learning how to be able to share my stories, you know, to get to the point now where, you know, I can say, wow, you know, I've worked with people like Bacardi, Office Depot, Pratt & Whitney, Accenture. You know, just a couple months ago, I did three trainings uh, for Google, you know, one for their Asian market, one for their European market, and then one for their U.S. market. And then I even had an opportunity, you know, for an organization I've looked up to forever. NASA brought me in um, at the Goddard Space Flight Center, and I had an opportunity to do a training first for their leadership. And then do it again for some of their staff. And, and you know, sometimes I got to pinch myself, say, man, this is crazy, right? Um, but it all started when I was willing to just sort of take that risk, man, and, and just, you know, step outside of my comfort zone. And we hear it all the time. They say, you know, your next level is going to exist on the other side of your comfort zone. And, you know, a lot of times we, we try to talk ourselves out of it, man, but we got to be one to sort of lean in. And, and do it because ultimately that's when everything begins to change for all of us, man. Mm, man. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, there's, there's so much there. I'll just say this, Les Brown, he's one of the greatest of all time. Some could call him the goat. And he does, he describes you in this way. He says, Andy gives it everything he's got. He gives, he gives it 150%. He's got a work ethic. Unlike anyone else. He cares more for what he's doing than just about anybody else. And he calls you the great one. I mean, and so I'm glad you brought that up because literally you must be reading my notes. My next question was mm -hmm. about him. So what was the number one lesson or insight you gained because of your access and exposure to Les Brown? Yeah, you know, it's, it's probably not what people are going to completely expect. So when I enrolled into the Platinum Speaker Program, I think that program is really supposed to be like a one-year program. But I probably like studied less and I study them till this day, but I'm talking about closely for about five years in the sense of every single time he was doing 
the trainings for the Platinum Speaker Program, even after my one year was up, I was still flying in and attending the trainings. Any opportunity I had to go see him speak, I would go and see him speak. And, you know, at first, everything just seemed like, like it was like magic. And maybe perhaps it was like me being very analytical. At some point, I started to see patterns. At some point, I started to see, they say success leaves clues. And I started to pick up the clues. And I started to pick up some of the gems. And, you know, sure, we were doing a lot of storytelling training. There's a lot of technical things. But one of the things that I noticed was that this, like, relentless pursuit and always being a student. And what I mean by that is I remember studying under Les and, you know, sharing something where there was, like, a quote. And it's because he's, like, the king of quotes or, like, sharing a story and then getting a phone call later on in the week and say, hey, Andy, could you tell me what was that quote again? That, 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 one, that one that you said about the defining moment, Kevin Costner, what is it again? I said, Les, when, when the defining moment comes, either you define the moment or the moment defines you. Okay, yeah, that one. I like that one. I like that one. Okay. And when he's saying I'm like that one, it was like he's committing it to memory because he wants to leverage it. Then he said, hey, tell me that story again about your buddy, the Eric Rett, that, that football player guy. I like the way you tell tell me that story again. And sure enough, what he was doing was he was committed to memory so that he could actually leverage it. And I remember one time, you know, being on stage and, and, um, you know, what he would do is that initially when he was working with me, he'd be speaking on stage and he'd say, I have, I have here in the audience, a young man. I mean, this, this, this young man, I mean, he's a, he's a dynamic young man. He's, he's going to change and impact the world. Um, you know, he's here, he's, he's visiting from Florida and I'd be sitting in my seat like, is he talking about me? What's going on here? Is he talking about me? And so, and so Billy, he's on somebody's stage, like getting paid to deliver a keynote. And then he brings me up, but this is the crazy part. It's one thing he said that. And he said, and I want you to hear from him, Andy Enriquez. And I'm like, what? Right now, now mind you, I'm not the first person nor the last he's ever done that. But then I'd come up and then he'd hand me the mic. And here's what he'd say. You got five minutes. You got five minutes, Billy. So I would have to get, I would get up there, my man. And of course we had been working on our story. So in that five minutes, I'm just going to tell my story. But I tell you like him passing the mic and a lot, like sharing the stage. How many people do that? That build a tremendous platform and are willing to share the stage. Like the belief of a great, a person of that level of greatness passing you the microphone in front of a captive audience, that level of trust goes beyond anything he says before he passes the mic, right? You could say anything, but it's a whole nother thing when you call me on stage and you pass me the mic in front of this audience, right? Um, and so that, that like him putting me on stage, number one, like just completely transformed my level of belief. Number two, was just seeing how much of a student he was. I remember one time I was speaking, he was taking these notes down and I thought the notes were for me. So I went to go see him and I was like, hey, I saw you jotting down some notes. Did you have some feedback for me? And he was like, yeah, I got some feedback, but yeah, no, the notes, no, those notes were for me. I was like, what? What do you mean those notes were for you? He's like, nah, and he says all the time, right? That you're never too old to learn and you're never too young to teach. And so here I am, I'm, I'm on stage, my mentor is sitting in the audience. He's taking notes. I'm thinking it's feedback for me. And he's uh-huh. telling me, nah, I'm picking up some gems for myself. Right. And so what it, what it showed me is that, you know, people that have that level of greatness are committed to being a student and they remain a student and they are always trying to figure out how do I learn and what's something else that I can sort of glean that I can get. And then the third thing is, Billy, is that. I tell you one thing that I observed is I would go with Les to these events and I was accustomed to seeing speakers when, you know, they're going to speak and especially someone at his level, there's the quote unquote green room, right? For anybody listening in, you wonder what the green room is. A lot of times when speakers are going to go speak at events, it's basically just a, a room backstage they call the green room. And normally it's just a place where the speakers can relax, get their thoughts together, maybe have a snack you know, have some water or whatever and, and get ready until it's time for them to get up and speak. And one of the things I noticed is that Les spent very little time in the green room. 
when he would get in certain places, the first thing he would do is start walking around and talking to the people, right? The people who are going to be in his audience, connecting with them. Hey, how are you? Oh my gosh. Let me say, yeah, let's take a picture. So tell me how long you've been with the company, what's going on and all these things. And so what I noticed was that, wow, look at this. He's not setting himself apart, but rather he is setting himself apart because he's connecting with these people and he's getting all this intel. And I think, and what I learned is that when I started you know, implementing that, it allows you to already feel connected to the audience before you even get on the stage. And because you're figuring like, hey, look, I'm on stage and I'm already seeing the faces of the people I was speaking to. And they're everyday people like me. And I've already taken a picture with them. I already find out about the name of their, their, their daughter, the name of their son. And I already find out what position they hold in the company and what their fears are and the things that are happening. And so those things just was like a game changer, like the importance of being an eternal student. The other thing is of just understanding that, you know, once you begin to have any kind of traction, that there's a responsibility for you to be a blessing to somebody else, right? To pass the baton, to create, hold the space, let somebody else be blessed. And then, you know, just this, this third concept of just understanding, like, get in the middle of the people, right? Be obsessed with your audience and don't get so caught up with your ego or your title and so forth. And understand if you want to serve that audience at the highest level, then you've got to make sure that you connect with them. And that connection starts like right away. And I, I mean, I would see him do this from the moment again, picked up from the airport, right? Because you don't, you don't even know who's picking you up from the airport. Right? Right. You, right. you might just think, you know, it's driver, lo and behold, it's, it's the, uh, you know, the, um, you know, the CEO of the company's cousin that owns the driving transportation company, right? And there, and, and there are some people that I say that I believe um, that for some people, the biggest tragedy would actually be to meet the person that is their mentor, the person that they see from afar, because they might get in close proximity and not like what they see, right? And so that's why I've learned that we, we want to we wanna be the same person consistently and make sure that we're showing up as that person uh, that we would love to attract, right? We want to show up as the person that we want to attract. Uh, and that is, you know, a, a person is kind, person is considerate. Doesn't mean that you're not going to make mistakes, um, but but that you see human beings and that you seek to make a true, genuine connection with those people. Man, laying it down. <laughs> wow. I mean, you you did such a beautiful job of reframing everything. The, the only thing I'll say is that what I hear in all of that is there's there's humility to be a learner, to be selfless, to always be thinking about. How do you immerse yourself in the audience that you're speaking to and to understand them? It takes a certain amount of humility. I, I love everything you just shared and what phenomenal takeaways from, a, you know, you, the incomparable. You cannot, there's only one Les Brown. Uh, and I had, I'm in Clubhouse. I had the opportunity to ask him a question and he was so kind and provided so much value to everybody on stage. So let's talk a bit about the signature story and the framework. Because I think, one of the things that stands out as I've listened to you and learned from your expertise is it starts with the challenge and then understanding how to have that pivot point or the defining moment and then the transformation. So I'm wondering if you could frame out why each of those elements are important as we craft our own signature story. Yeah. So man, here's the thing. I get the opportunity where I work with entrepreneurs, speakers, and coaches in my Master Storyteller Academy. But then I also have had the opportunity where I'm, you know, speaking and training uh, direct sales force. So like what they would refer to as consultants or even working with leaders within an organization. And across the board, people might say, well, Andy, how exactly do I find my signature story? And the reason why I shared who I get an opportunity to work with is because what I found is across the board, it didn't matter if I was working with them through my Master Storyteller Academy, working for a direct sales company or going into a corporation, we were always able to find someone's signature story if we just basically like turned over the rock in these three areas. And so if you're listening in right now, you're like, well, first of all, what is a signature story? You know, I, I would define a signature story as like, this is like your hit record. This is the story that allows you to be able to connect with your ideal customer and client. This is the story that allows you to connect with the people that I like to define as your assignment, the people that you're called to. 
Because we've heard this old adage so many times before. People love to do business with people that they know, like, and trust. So my question always is how to get to know you, how to get to like you, how to get to trust you. They get to know, like, and trust you through your story. So if you think about any major influencer, they typically have a signature story. It's like a story that they share over and over again. And this is across the board. We were talking about Les Brown. If you've heard Les Brown, you've heard him share the story about being born in Miami, Florida, being labeled educably mentally retarded, right? Being left in an abandoned building by his biological mother, right? We've heard that story over and over again. If you've heard of Joel Osteen, regardless of what your faith is, but if you've heard Joel Osteen, at some point you heard him talk about how he was the cameraman and he was not the lead pastor. His father was. His father passed away and they came to him as the cameraman and asked him to now become the pastor, right? So that is like part of like his signature story. If you know who Tyler Perry is, you've heard Tyler Perry share the actual story of trying to get that first play off the ground. Year one, the play not working. That's a signature story. If you heard of Mel Robbins, she talks about, you know, basically getting this TV show and the thing didn't necessarily work out. And that's what gave birth to her five second rule. So what I want you to realize is across the board, whether or not you realize it or not, Great influencers have a signature story. It's an extension of their brand. It's something that they lead with. It's something that allows them to be able to create a true, genuine connection with the people that they're looking to ultimately attract to their brand, to their products, to their services, to their ministry, to whatever. Okay. Now, now that we know that, how do you find your signature story? So here's the thing people only lie in really two spectrums. They're either going to say, Andy, I don't know if I even have a story. And typically for that person, what they're doing is they're just playing the comparison game, right? They're, mm. they're, they're looking at somebody else. They're like, oh my goodness, you know, this person is like a double amputee. This person's been strung out on drugs. You know, this person had like a, a life altering disease, you know, this person, and they look and they look at these type of stories and they're comparing their story. And that's what I did. I was listening to these stories and I'm like, oh, but what? oh my gosh, I, I grew up in the suburbs. Yeah, my mom comes from nothing, but I was born here. Her sacrifices helped me. I was a straight A student. Like none of that sounds really, <laughs> really sad or tragic. No one's going to feel bad for me, right? So they get caught up in the comparison game. And if that's you, I want to remind you, that just because somebody has a story like that, it doesn't take away from your story at all. Now, then you have the other perspective. The person says, I got so many stories, Andy. I have no idea which one is my signature story. And if that's you, this is all the things that you're going to do. Just look at these three areas real quickly. Number one, we want you to consider what challenges you've been through. We've all been through challenges in our life. Some of us have been through financial challenges. Some of us have been through you know, relationship challenges. Some of us have been through some health challenges. If you look back at your significant challenges in your life, there is always going to be a story there especially the challenges that you were able to get to the other side. In other words, you came out on the other side. You might've been scraped up. You might've got banged up, but you came out on the other side and you most likely got a lesson. Somebody once said, when you lose, don't lose the lesson. So if you start looking at your significant challenges in life, what you're going to do is also unpackage some really powerful stories, but not just the story for the sake of getting a story. But if you have the lesson, you're going to have a very powerful lesson for your audience and the people that you're called to. And it's most likely going to be a lesson that is going to resonate with them. So challenges is some place that we're going to look. The other place that we're going to look is what I like to refer to as a defining moment. You've heard us bring this up during this conversation between me and Billy, right? This defining moment. And so when we think about a defining moment, the way I define a defining moment, it's sort of like if we, if your life was like a timeline and you had like a pin, you can go and put a pin on the timeline and say there was the before that moment and then there was the after that moment. And the trajectory of your life change, listen carefully, for better or for worse. Okay. But that was a defining moment. It was a defining moment. We have many moments, but I believe that all of us have a certain amount of key defining moments in our lives that ultimately changes the trajectory of our lives. And if you look back at your defining moments, you're also going to find a great story there. And then the third thing that I want you to consider 
is also what I like to refer to as any major transitions. Life is full of transitions. We're going to go through transitions. Man, I'm telling you, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, we have experienced some transitions and it's not going to stop. There will be more transitions. Life is full of transitions. Now, thank God we have the ability to be able to adapt. But if you look at your significant transitions in life, you will also find great stories. And I believe that those transition stories are really important for those of us who are coaches, who are consultants, who are influencers. Why? Because typically the people who are your assignment are on the same path as you, but they're earlier on in the path than you are. And if you can share your story about where you used to be, which is typically where they are in whatever category. At one point, I was struggling in my relationship. I was struggling with my finances. I was struggling with my health, whatever your category is, right? I was struggling with my faith, whatever your category is. And then you talk about how things have changed for you now. Today, I'm in a happy, fulfilling relationship. I'm in the best shape of my life. You know, uh, my business is really prosperous. You know, I feel more spiritually connected than ever before. That person is normally going to, number one, first identify with where you used to be because that's where they are. Then they're going to love the fact that things have changed for you. But then their normal question is, how did you do it? And the solution Mm -hmm. is typically going to be your products and your services and whatever it is that you have to offer. Now, every once in a while, Billy, when we look back, and I know, Billy, because I've had the opportunity to sort of listen in on on your podcast and hear you so many times on, on the platform Clubhouse and so forth. And knowing about your transition, in some cases, like in your case, Billy, in my case, you're going to find that that moment may encompass everything. So for me, my moment was that December of 2004, where I got a little bit into my story because I was showing up. I followed the script, did everything that my Caribbean parents told me to do, go to school, get a good education, get a good job. I did that. I get my master's degree. I get a CPA license. I'm working with the big four public accounting firms, amazing company, every reason to do well. But yet and still, every single day I'm saying to myself, there's got to be more than this. Now, here's the thing. That's a challenge. It's just the internal challenge. So challenges don't always have to be external. That was the internal challenge that I was facing. But watch this. If you were also say, what has me right now speaking to Billy on this podcast and speaking to all of you who are listening in, it was because that was also a defining moment. If you were to put a pin in my life, you say, when did things change? When did the trajectory of Andy's life change? You would say December of 2004, when he made the decision to leave corporate America. So I've got a challenge. I've got a defining moment. But you know what was also there? It was a significant transition. That's where I went from working a corporate job to becoming a so-called entrepreneur. And I say so-called because at first I was figuring things out. That's where I started my journey of becoming an entrepreneur. Now, when, you, when, you, when I say this to you, I don't want you thinking that that means that your story needs to be a challenge, a transition, and a defining moment. Sometimes that's how the cards lay out. The, what I am saying is that when you're trying to find that that signature story of yours. If you look there, I assure you, you will be able to find your signature story. Look at what are your significant challenges? What were your defining moments? And what were your major transitions? And that's where we start off, Billy, with anyone I'm working with, I'm helping them to craft and share their story. That's where we start off so that we can first find the story. That's exactly where we start off. And that's where we start doing the digging research so that we can discover what that story is before we develop it and then before I help them with the delivery of it. Mm. And even if the listener or the person in the audience doesn't relate to the details of your story, they will relate to it in another way. And I think relatability is such an important part of storytelling. And as we wind down here, I want to just ask you this. How does the neurochemistry, you know, the oxytocin and the other hormones that are flooding <laughs> in our brain, how do they play into this? As you're telling stories, maybe if you could walk us through a little bit of the biological things that are happening as we share them. Yeah. So here's the thing, right? Um, you know, we know there's always going to be some some nerds listening in. I'm a nerd. Billy's a nerd. You know, and some of us, we we like the data. We like the we like the 
the, the information as well. Now, we don't want to always just rely on just facts, right? We want to make sure we're incorporating stories. But, you know, the science behind it in this most simplest format is when we just resort to telling people content, facts and figures, we're only engaging two parts of their brain. One part of the brain is responsible for language processing and the other part of the brain that's responsible for language comprehension. Now, that's cool, but the issue with that is that people don't normally remember when you're just sharing facts and figures with them. And it's the reason why, like, you can go to a great conference, take a boatload of notes, and people say, oh, my gosh, how was the conference? You say, it was amazing. They say, really? <laughs> well, tell me about it. You're like, oh, I, I got to grab my notes. Well, my goodness, you can't tell me anything without the notes. No, no, it's a lot. I got to grab the notes. And the thing is, it's just, it's just not the way the brain is wired to remember all those facts and details. So what happens is if we could just be wise enough to take those facts and details and then we put them within the context of a story, not only do we engage those first two parts of the brain, but now we begin to engage five additional areas of the brain. And these are the parts of the brain that normally fire off based off of the five senses, right? So normally these are parts of the brain that fire off based off of smell, taste, right? Sight, hearing, feeling, take all these things now. And once we begin to stimulate all those different areas of the brain, we also create a shared experience between ourselves and the audience and the listeners. And here's where it gets even crazier. We also cause people to start releasing certain chemicals and hormones in their body, and one of which is known as oxytocin. Now, one of the nicknames for oxytocin is it is also known as the love hormone. So that means like after this podcast, you know, when I'm done with Billy here and I walk out to the living room and I go and I hug my daughter and I kiss my wife, I want you to realize that there is a hormone being released, oxytocin, that that's the same hormone that when I kiss my wife and I hug my daughter and say, I love you, that same hormone is being released when we are really doing a great job of sharing and telling stories. And so if you want people to fall in love with you, like you want them to fall in love with your products, your services, with your ideas, then we want to be real intentional about sharing and telling stories. And then here's the other thing. If you want people to take action, and ultimately that's what we want. We want people's lives to change. And sometimes them taking action may mean joining our movement, buying our products, our services, supporting our nonprofit, you know, um, you know supporting our ministry, whatever it is, a major component to them taking action is going to be based upon how you make them feel. This is huge. There's a Harvard professor by the name of Gerald Zaltman. And what they did was they did, you know, all of this continual research to figure out what drives people's buying decision or decision-making process. And a major component to our decision-making process, number one, is happening subconsciously. So yeah, I know we're smart. We think we, we've, we've thought through every decision. Nah, 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 nah. You're making so many decisions subconsciously. You're not even oh. thinking about it. You're doing that autopilot. And then if you're really smart, right, then you're going to go back after the fact and then you're going to try to justify it and <laughs> rationalize it, right? Yeah, yeah. right? Right, right, right. So you're driving, you go by that, you, you go by that car dealership. You're like, oh, I'm not buying anything. Right. And then you walk into a dealership and a car salesman comes out. It's like, oh, let's go for a test drive. You're like, no, nah, I'm not sure. They said, well, you don't charge for a test drive. They get your driver's license. They get you in the car. They're like, oh, man, come on. Yeah. Well, wh what's your radio station to get you to put on the radio station? You know, it's got a sunroof. You put the sunroof back, you know, they're like, hey, don't be afraid. Go back this back road. Hey, hit it. And you feel the power in that vehicle and so forth. Right. And so they've enrolled you. And then afterwards, next thing you know, you're thinking about making this buying decision. You're like, oh, you know, we do need more room. You know, I do need room for the car seat, for the family and so forth. Last time we went on the trip, which was like three years ago, we didn't have enough room. So this has one. And then you try to justify and you go home and you say, the reason why I bought this sports SUV is because we needed to have more room for the baby seat. Now, you know that I know that you know <laughs> that is not why you spent that money, right? It was because of the way that it made you feel, right? So that feeling oftentimes is going to drive why we make decisions. So it said over 90% of our buying decisions is happening at a subconscious level 
and it's connected to the emotion. And if we want to transfer that emotion, the best way for us to do it is through stories. And so the stories that we tell is going to allow us to get people to fall in love with our concepts and our ideas, our products and our services. And it is also going to help us to mobilize them to take action. And so that is in its most like simplistic way. And, you know, Tony Robbins talks about all the time that, you know, uh, complexity is the enemy of execution. And so I hope that when I share that with you, yes, I'm giving you some facts and so forth, but hopefully I did it in a way where you're like, oh, I totally get this, right? Without inundating you and giving you way too many uh, sort of facts and figures there. But that's what makes stories so, so very powerful and why we need to leverage them every opportunity that we get. Well, man, I just got to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation and so valuable, filled with insights, filled with your your own journey, your own story. And I can't wait for people to learn more from you. I know you're in the midst of transitioning some of, some of the places where people could find you. So I want to make sure I give them the most up-to-date information. Where would they be able to find more information and definitely tap into more of your knowledge and more of your ways that you help people craft their own stories? Because we've scratched the uh, the surface here, but I know you go far deeper with people that you work with. So I'd love it if you could share that. Yeah, nah. Thank you so much, Billy. So here's the thing. Across social media, I'm at Andy Henriquez. So, you know, really cool. Billy and I were able to connect on Clubhouse. So if you're on Clubhouse, I'm at Andy Enriquez. On all the other platforms, I'm at Andy Enriquez, except for Instagram, I'm at show up for your life, which is also the name of my book. So at show up for your life on Instagram, every other platform, I'm at Andy Henriquez. I'm also the founder of the Master Storyteller Academy. And so if you want to learn more about the Master Storyteller Academy, you can head over to masterstorytelleracademy.com. But yeah, Billy, man, this has been awesome, man. I really, really, I mean, I was looking forward to this because I knew you were just such a great interviewer and such a great podcaster, but this has been, this has been a real treat, man. I really, really enjoyed our time together. And I tell you, I definitely got to get a copy of this because you, you got me to pull out so many things that I've, I've never really shared on any other podcasts or interviews, not in some of the places that we went. Oh man, I appreciate that. It means a lot. And it's just been such a joy. And this is only just the beginning. Thank you for sharing what it means to follow your dreams, to do what's in your heart and never let go, to show that consistency, discipline, hard work does pay off. And if you're at that point, that inflection point where you're making that decision and you have that moment, that tipping point, that defining moment to take advantage of that and change your life to do the thing that you're meant to do Andy Enriquez, thank you for being on Inside Out. Hey, man, thanks for having me. This has been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.